If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up this morning to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is sandwiched right in, it's in the Old Testament. It's actually closer to the front of the Old Testament than to the back of the Old Testament. And it's sandwiched right in between the book of Judges and and the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's a little tiny book, and if you're not paying attention, you will pass right over it. It's on page 222 of the Pew Bible, if you're looking for it this morning in the Pew Bible. Well, I've said already that this is a love story. Well, what is a great love story? What are some of the great love stories that, that, that we know of in our culture? Uh, probably, if you had to say the greatest love story that we have in our culture, you would probably, most of us would say Romeo and Juliet. The story of star-crossed lovers coming together, sacrificing everything to be with each other. And then, of course, it's tragic in the very end of it. What about one of Jane Austen's books, uh, one of her books, Pride and Prejudice? Required reading for every young girl so that she can know the exact kind of man that she's supposed to marry. We have all of these romance novels and romantic ideas about the way that love is supposed to go. Well, in the book of Ruth, we have an ancient love story. It is an ancient love story. But let me just go ahead and warn you, this is not a romantic love story. The idea of romance is a fairly recent invention. The only people that had time for romance... Uh, up until about 200 years ago, were the extremely wealthy people. Uh, There's a book called Love in the Time of Cholera, which um, it's a fascinating book about how it is that people who are dying love each other. Um, In the midst of your great sickness and all of these things, how does love work in that? Well, that's that's the way that love operated uh, uh, until about 200 years ago. Uh, Love was a much more practical thing. People looked at things much more practically. Whenever death is right around the corner and you need to have children in order to uh, make sure your family is provided for, you have to take some practical things into consideration. And yet, just because it's not romantic does not mean it's not a wonderful love story all the same. This story is about humans coming together in love, but it's more than that. It's actually the story of God's divine love for a people. God's divine love for a people and him overcoming all of the obstacles that are in his way to show love to his beloved bride. But in the midst of this, it's a very ordinary thing. It's a very ordinary and common story. So those are the things we're going to see. And we're studying this. Because this is an Advent story. We have basically almost two months until Christmas. And you normally don't start, start Advent until the first week of Christmas. But this story is the story of the coming king. Of waiting and longing for the king. And you'll see that as we work through this. And we're doing this in preparation for Christmas and all of the joy of Christmas and the preparation of living in between the first coming of Christ and also waiting for Christ in his second return. Not only that, this book, it's about so many different things. 
This is this the book of Ruth is actually meant to be the companion to Psalm 31. I'm not sorry, uh, Proverbs 31. It's meant to show you the kind of of woman that godly women are supposed to be, and Ruth is the example of that. But not only that, it's it's the example to men of the kind of man that godly men are supposed to be. It's to show young women the kind of man that they are supposed to marry and to show young men the kind of women that they're supposed to marry. This is a book of wisdom, but it's primarily about Jesus Christ and how we live waiting for the return of the king. So let me, let me uh, read this for us. We're going to read Ruth 1 through 5. Ruth 1, 1 through 5. And then I'll pray and ask the Lord's help in understanding this word this morning. Let's pray. All right, let's, let me read this for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea, or in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Ophrah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Chilion died so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. Mm-hmm. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word, and we pray that we would see in it your glory. And we pray that we would understand more and more today the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to look at this passage in three ways today. First of all, we're going to see an ordinary time. Secondly, we're going to see an ordinary people. And then thirdly, an ordinary law. So first, we're going to see an ordinary time. Look at verse 1. We're given a historical marker here. The time that this took place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so right off the bat, the, the author here gives us a historical marker. In the days of the judges. Now, Um, If you've read the book of Judges, if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that the book of Judges uh, is set in a particular time and it's meant to show the unfaithfulness of God's people and all that God does to overcome that unfaithful. And the book of Judges is is a cycle. Um, It starts good where God's people are being faithful and then uh, God blesses the people and then over time the people forget about God and their wealth and prosperity, they forget And then God, as they turn to idolatry, God brings discipline upon his people. He brings famine and judgment on them. Uh, He brings other nations to overcome them. And then it goes to the next part where most of the time the people repent and they turn back to God. Uh, and, uh, And then after they repent, God restores them and brings them back to wealth and prosperity. And this cycle goes on about seven times in the book of Judges. Uh, And it's supposed to tell you something about the spiritual condition of God's people. God had saved them. God had given them a land, had planted them in a place that was flowing with milk and honey. It was prosperous. It was a wonderful place that they could live. And yet God's people were not faithful to him. It's an ordinary and sad story of the nature of God's people. 
Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find yourself in that. When things are going good, you think you're doing pretty good, and, and you forget about God for a while, and then things go bad, and you think, oh, yeah, I need to return to God. And that's kind of the way that we live our lives. And, and we find ourselves in the book of Ruth right there in the midst of that section of judgment and discipline on God's people. How do we know that? Well, it's when the famine was in the land. And the famine essentially means that it had not rained. The crops weren't producing. This isn't just a, a few-month period. This is a long season of drought and of crops not producing and there being no more food to go around. There's just not enough to go around. And what's interesting is, where does this all take place? Where is, is this family? They're in Bethlehem. The, the word Bethlehem means the, the city of bread, the place of bread. That should be a familiar city to you because, of course, that's the city that Jesus was born in. That's the city of David. Those are all things that, that were to call to mind that are, this story is happening before those events. And it's in the city of bread when the famine is most severe. It's in the place that is called essentially God's provision And it seems as though God is not there. And yet, right next door to Israel, just a few miles over, are the sworn enemies of God and his people, the Moabites. The Moabites, these evil and depraved and wicked people. And then right next door to God's people and God's land, the Moabites are doing well. The Moabites are growing. The Moabites are thriving. This is a good place to start the story. It's an ordinary time. It's a common time of famine, of there not being enough. It's an ordinary time of hardship. It's an ordinary time because the future looks bleak and they need to do something drastic. And if you and I were living in that day with Elimelech and Naomi, we would think that maybe God has deserted us and God has left us. God has abandoned us. But I want you to remember something, that as we go through this book, I want you to understand that God has not deserted his people. God has not left them. And I want you to remember that whenever you face your very ordinary times of hardship. Whenever you're facing all of the different struggles in your life that make things so hard, that makes life so unbearable. Because our tendency is to think in those times that God is not there. But we find out here at the beginning of Ruth and in chapter 1 in hardship that God is there. That God is at work. We're going to see that as we go through the book of Ruth. Secondly, we see an ordinary people. A very ordinary people. Uh, In verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech. uh, And his wife's name is Naomi. Um, this is very ordinary, isn't it? This is very common. It's a man and a woman. It's a husband and a wife. We have the same, and we say oftentimes that God works in mysterious ways. And it is absolutely true that God's ways are mysterious. But one of the things that we forget oftentimes is that God's mysterious ways and God's working in mysterious ways, he works in the ordinary, in the common, in the everyday stuff. And that is incredibly mysterious. Because humans operate in the big, in the showy, in the attention-grabbing stuff, in the, in the fame-seeking stuff. That's how humans 
operate. We want a big splash. And the thing that's so mysterious about God is here at the beginning of this story of the redemption of his people, he says, I want you to see a man and a wife, a husband and wife. I want you to see an ordinary, average family. There's nothing special about them. And indeed, you probably can find yourself very easily in these two individuals. Here's Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. Now that is a strong name. That is a, that is a powerful name. My God is king. Now here's this man who, who was named Elimelech by, it, probably by his parents in faith to God. And here he is in Bethlehem, in the famine. His God is king. And he's got nothing. He has no resources, nothing to himself. He can't provide for his family. He can't do enough to make things right. I would bet you that there's more than one man here who feels like a Elimelech this morning, that you can't do enough, that every, at every turn things aren't going the way that they're supposed to go. And even though you're a man of faith, you look at your life and you say, this isn't, this isn't what it's supposed to be like. And then there's Naomi. She's an ordinary Jewish wife. Her name means beautiful. Uh, At a time when children were not named probably until they were five years old and older because uh, of the fact that they died very, uh, before they were five, children died pretty, pretty, it was pretty commonplace. And so Naomi was probably named much, much older She was a beautiful child, and she was very beautiful. But here is Elimelech, God is king, and Naomi, who is beautiful. And even though she has that resource to herself, she can't do anything for her family because of the famine. Her beauty is pointless. And we're told this, they have two boys. Um... Now, that should be good news. At a time when you really hoped that you could have more boys than girls in your family and have lots of children, but most of them would be boys, you wanted boys because they, could, they were raised to work and work hard and provide for the family. And so it should be a good thing. They have two boys. And they're, so the boys are Malon and Chilion. And so you have these two boys, and they're there, and you think, oh, well, this is good. And if we were reading this back then, we would think, oh, Well, they have nothing to worry about. They have boys, except you need to know something about these two boys. Again, they're named later in life. And Malon means um, sick or sickly. So they have a boy, and his name is sickly. And then they have another boy, Chilion, and his name is frail or frailty. Can you imagine naming your children sickly and frail? What is that an indication of? That, that even though most people would say, you're having, you have boys and you can hope and, and they can take care of you, the reality is that you have a family that is already struggling with famine and disease and all of these things and they can't provide. And then on top of that, they have even more struggle. They have two boys who really can't help take care of the family and provide for the family. The thing that, according to the world, should help is now the thing that brings more and more struggle. I want you to understand something here. I want you to understand and pay attention to this. 
This is hard. This is not easy. But this is very ordinary. This is very common. This is the nature of families. Husband who can't do enough. A wife who can't do enough. Children that can't do enough. And they're stuck and they're struggling and they don't know what's going to happen to them. And if you find yourself this morning in a family like that, here's the good news. God works in families just like this and just like yours. With worthless dads and pointless moms and no good children, God works in families. Wrap your head around that, that God works in families and uses families like ours to bring about the redemption of his people. He works in families that are absolutely maddening and crazy and chaotic. Just try getting your children ready on Sunday morning to come to church. It's a nightmare. (laughs) And God works in those families. God delights to work in even the small little struggles and all of the little things. God doesn't work primarily in the big and flashy things, but in families like this. Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, and Chilion. Then we move to the next thing, the final thing that we see here. We see a very ordinary loss in 3 and 5. So Elimelech makes a drastic decision. He's going to pick up his family and move from the city of bread to Moab. He's going to move to the place where there isn't a famine. He's going to essentially leave his property, his security, all of his wealth and everything to hopefully provide for his family. So he's trying to do the right thing and then what happens? But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These are sad times. Um, Any of you that have moved, you know the stress of moving and what that's like. It's hard to do it. Now imagine you don't have um, a moving company to help you. And you pick up and you got to move from one place to another. And you got to move your family on foot with your two sickly boys. It's a hard thing to do. And the stress of the move and the stress of Elimelech trying to provide for his family and doing all these things, he dies. And then Naomi is there. Naomi has to pick up the pieces of her life. And because life is so hard, she doesn't have time to grieve. And she devises a plan. And she was left with her two sons. In verse 4, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Oprah and the name of the other was Ruth. Now, Oprah gets her name from this, but her mom misspelled it. (laughs) And that's how she got her name, was from this woman in the Bible. But you see Naomi, she's trying to figure out some way to provide for her family. And she says, there's only one way that it can happen. My boys have to get married. They have to have children of their own. And so, by some miracle, she convinces two Moabite women to marry these two sickly Jewish men. Men that can't provide for themselves and work for themselves. Somehow or another, she gets it done. And then the hope is 
that they will then be able to provide more children, and hopefully those boys will be able to grow up and take care of the family. That's the hope. And then what happens? They lived there about 10 years, and after 10 years of this, both Malon and Chilion died. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes. She's lost her husband. She's in a strange land. She has her sons that she's trying to, uh, trying to help and trying to make sure they are provided for, and then they die. She's in a foreign place. She's now got these foreign women that are looking to her. She's out of resources. She's absolutely lost. Now, I want you to understand, this is so very ordinary. So very ordinary. Doesn't it always seem like when things go bad, they get worse and worse and worse? Now, I want you to understand that when I say it's ordinary, I'm not saying it's right or good. But this is the way that life is like. It's not right but it's so common that that grief is compounded by more and more and more grief. This is incredibly sad. If you've ever lost someone you love, you know what that grief is like. Now, imagine losing children. We've lost children, Amy and I have, and it's, it's a grief that is so hard. You know what that's like. You think, in the midst of that grief, is God here? Is he paying attention to what's going on? Does he indeed love me? Naomi must have been feeling that. She must have been feeling that. I'm not alone in that. Naomi's not alone in that. You're there too. Does God know your grief? You have nothing left. And I want you to understand something. This is, an, this is a great place to start God's love story for his people. This is indeed the place that God loves to start I hope you see a bit of yourself in this. That we have no hope in ourselves. We're out of resources. We have nothing left and God is going to work. And that's the good news that we see in this passage. Now we don't get to it this week. (laughs) But beginning next week, or not next week, but the week after, you're going to see the way that God provides in a very ordinary, at a very ordinary time through ordinary people With a very ordinary loss, God is at work. Just a reminder, just a bit of encouragement for you this morning. God is there. God is there. From beginning to end of your life, through faith in Jesus Christ, God is there and he knows the hurt. How do we know that? Who was in charge of the famine? God was. Who was in charge of Elimelech and and Naomi and their decision, God was. Who is in charge over life and death? God was. And though it's hard for us to see in the midst of all of the different various struggles that we go through, God is there. God is at work. God is in charge. He has not left us or forsaken us. All of these things is for the good of his people. And more than that, All of the hurt in your life is for your good as well. All of the ordinary things, all of the hard things, all of the struggles and the pain and the grief and the daily aggravations of life, God is at work in those moments for your good. The challenge for us is to see how God is at work. 
And we're going to see that through the book of Ruth. It's my prayer that we will. Uh, Finally, I just want to point us to the Lord's Supper this morning. We have a great opportunity to gather together to to taste the goodness of God together. Uh, In the book of Ruth, we start in the days of judgment, in the days of judges, when the famine was severe. God was withholding the bread from his people. But here on the other side of Jesus Christ, on the other side of the finished work of Jesus Christ, I want you as a Christian to understand this morning, God has not withheld the bread of life from you. Jesus Christ is for you this morning. And in this meal, he invites us to enjoy the bread of life and be nourished by it. That on the other side of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the one that pursues God's people. He is the one that comes for us and goes to death so that we can have life. He is the culmination of this love story of Ruth and the one that Ruth was looking forward to and the one that we celebrate today. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us truly celebrate the finished work of Christ. Father, we thank you for giving us this word this morning. We thank you that even through all of the ordinary and painful things of life that you are at work, that you never leave or forsake your people, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you have given the bread of life to us so that we can fellowship with each other and with Christ forever and ever and ever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.